Welcome to the Guidelines Podcast. The following is a conversation with Mandy Robinson about accessibility and inclusivity in design. I first discovered Mandy when I came upon her blog, which you can find a link to in the show notes. I love how she has written about accessibility, app development, user experience design, art, prototyping, icon design, as well as the evolution of digital music interfaces. The point is that she clearly has a growth mindset about design and is a perfect fit for the show. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Enjoy. Mandy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I, I love your podcast. Um, it's great to be able to speak about um, my opinions and things I do. Um, thanks for having me. If someone were to open up LinkedIn and type in Mandy Robertson, they'd see that you've been designing for the better part of 20 years. What has that been like and what differences have you seen in the design scene over the last 20-ish years? Well, a big thing has been our job titles. I think you did a, a podcast on that. Um, we now are UX designers, but when I started, um, I was doing multimedia, so I was a multimedia designer. So it's that's one thing I've always found me amusing being a web designer then an interaction designer so the job titles changed but it's pretty much the same thing it's changed a lot in that when I first started it was very pixel perfect and getting things crafting and now it's more iteration based and and not being so particular about your designs I just think back when I was a junior and how I'd spend hours crafting little pixel icons and but now things move faster and yeah, it's, it's, it's quite different. So you, you're basically saying that you've had experience in not just sort of design the way that we look at it now, like design systems and app building, but it sounds like you did, like you mentioned pixel art. So I'm assuming that you ended up doing some stuff for like video games and stuff in that, in that kind of area. Yes. Um, uh, so also flash. Oh, flash. Yes. Do you remember flash? <laughs> So Flash was actually discontinued this week. So it's actually very, it's pertinent that you're bringing it up. Only now. <laughs> Only now. Flash has died, finally. <laughs> finally. Oh, well, I did love it. I mean, I, I'd, when we designed websites, I would love creating those timeline-based animations and illustrating. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so I worked at a, I was an intern at a company called Redshift in Cape Town, and they did a lot of, like, game graphics. So I did a lot of, and they were pixel style, the, um, the creative director was very into Commodore 64, so there was um, a lot of influence drawn on that. And we did a lot of game graphics and illustration and animation and things like that. So it was a lot of fun. It's changed quite a lot since then, but it was a lot of fun and, and seemed like there was a lot more freedom and less cons constraints back then. When you're speaking about fun and pixel art and all these like kind of different phases that design went through, I could start thinking about experimentation and craft. Like remember I used to have uh, on my old Windows computer, I used to have Winamp player and I used to download skins for it. And there used to be these weird like faces with the, all these any like interesting designs. What were some of the, the pros and cons that you as a designer saw? So you were doing these like interesting, maybe like aesthetically pleasing designs, but did you did you see them scale well and, and, and work well across multiple systems and user groups? And a con would be the time it took and also that I guess the waterfall approach of things designers would spend like a long time crafting crafting things and then hand it over and 
and then it would be that process of trying to have it look pixel perfect when you when the developers are coding. So I think the time was definitely a, a con there because it just, things took so long. And also the unknown, I guess it felt like the Wild West then. Um, there, there were a lot of unknowns. And without design systems, you know, those the bigger websites that you'd be designing there, you, things just really took a long time, like designing each component and trying to figure out. Whereas now we've got like, great design systems and, and guidelines and, and things we can draw from. So I can also see in your experience that you've not only worked in the South African context, but you've also worked overseas and specifically in London. At, at what point did you do that? And did you notice any differences between the design scene in South Africa versus the design scene in Europe? Yeah, I worked in London for about four or five years. Um, I freelanced quite a bit when I first arrived. I went on those two-year working visas um, and I worked a lot in central London at, at all the cool agencies that I'd always followed when I was in Cape Town. It was quite an exciting time. But I ended up working at a company that sponsored me, which was more of an educational um, sector as opposed to advertising. They did a lot of websites for BBC and, and um, cultural things in London. So it was a, a lot drier, you know, quite more, a lot more serious than that. It took accessibility very seriously and you had to make sure your designs were um, compliant with a lot of guidelines and things like color ratios and having good contrast and, and, and making sure color is visible to everyone and, and stuff like that. So that's when I started learning more about that, which was, I think, a very important grounding for me because we had to do it in our designs. I'd like to say, Mandy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like, it's really great to have you. And um, thank you for making yourself available to share your knowledge. Just before we get going, I'd like to reach out to any of the listeners now. Like, if you're looking for a great blog around design and just like some very thoughtful posts around design and design thinking, all that kind of thing, uh, check out Mandy's blog. I'm going to leave a link to it in the show notes. And with that, I'd actually like to get into today's topic. So today we're going to be speaking about accessibility and inclusive design. This is a topic that is very trendy and it's grown traction over the last couple of years. You're saying, Mandy, that you even experienced it when you were working in London over that four to five year period, but it's specifically become very, very important to big companies over the last couple of years, at least in my perception. Could we start with a broad overview on what you mean when we talk about accessibility, what we mean about inclusive design? These are very broad terms, but could you unpack them a bit for us? Sure. So accessibility focuses, it focuses on the outcomes. So it Concerning a set of guidelines, if your website is um, accessible, it means it's, it adheres to certain constraints and um, um, guidelines by governmental industries. Um, a a well-known website would be w3.org, which shows all the guidelines um, for people with disabilities. Um, so it's... Such a great resource. The W3 is so flipping good. It is, yes. Whereas inclusive design is, is closely linked, but it's not an outcome. As it's more of a methodology of design. So it's about not only the people with disabilities, but it's also finding those other situations which could be temporary or situational or, or how people interact with things in their particular environments. So 
it's a process of of understanding those diverse people and situations. Mm. Okay, so what you're saying is that accessibility focuses on the end result or an outcome. So a design can be a design that adheres to accessibility standards, whereas inclusive design is very similar to our last episode on agile. It's a methodology, it's a culture that a team and a company can buy into. Is that correct? Yes, um, and it's a process. And it's a process of um, creating designs that can be used by diverse by diverse group of people because accessibility accessibility on its own will leave out a lot of those use cases that inclusive design would uncover. Mm, so they almost have to work hand in hand. They do, and yeah, so they they work together. Uh, make experiences compliant with standards, but also usable and 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 open to everybody. Mm, okay, so. But I fundamental of UX. So we're talking about inclusive design and how it's something that teams can adopt in the same way that the teams can adopt an agile methodology or be human-centered and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell us any companies that you think are getting this right and perhaps give some examples of that? I think, well, in terms of accessibility, I think uh, like mobile technologies get doing very well and, and they've got a good understanding of it and um, so I think mobile technology is amazing with it um, Apple phones I mean people can with all sorts of disabilities can use um, Apple phones and, and and Android is good with that too um, browsers Firefox Chrome Chrome ha- actually has a has great plans for auditing accessibility on on websites. So I think um, the big companies are really pushing for it. Um, when, I, when I worked in London, the BBC, they've got their own accessibility design systems and guidelines. So they're really good at it. South Africa, I think it's um, not quite there yet. I can't really think of any examples offhand, um, but I think it's we need to be part of that shift of, of moving towards it and including more people here, especially being being, we're an incredibly diverse nation um, and more so than many other places in the world. So it's something we really should be focusing on. In preparation for this, I had an idea. I thought it'd be pretty cool to treat this interview as if we're having a conversation. And I'm going to take the, the character of someone who is ignorant to the value of inclusivity as a design approach and also the value of accessibility and rating your designs in terms of accessibility. So I thought I would start off with some questions from the perspective of someone who doesn't really know about it. Maybe they've just finished a university and they want to learn a bit more and they heard a bit about it, but they're not convinced. And then we can move later into this thing of, okay, cool, you've convinced me, now I'm an advocate. How can I build systems and structures around that? So can I get into some of those questions? Yeah, sure. Okay, fantastic. So the first question I have when you start talking about inclusive design, accessibility is, I think to myself, doesn't it waste time and budget to spend additional effort on designing for all of these fringe use cases? I think the goal is for most businesses to get your to have as much reach as possible and include to allow as many people using and coming to whatever business that it is or service that you're providing you want those numbers so it doesn't make sense to exclude large portions of the populations so it does make very business sense to try to make your site more accessible to more people okay so i think another follow-up question i'd have to that 
being is okay so you're saying that okay so it does help us improve our reach and it does help us reach more people and you're saying that basically the business bottom line is that we make it we we, we include more people that means we can get more people to buy into our products um will this thing of trying to say for example if we wanted to um, have a website that includes multiple languages or helps people who maybe are visually impaired or that kind of thing like could it not um reduce the quality of the experience by trying to include all these different perspectives would it not overcomplicate and overburden whatever product we're trying to make i would say quite the opposite um i think good design comes from uh, tight constraints and and i think it's always good to start with most extreme constraint and and over the years you'll see in design there's been so much innovation coming from those tight constraints like an example would be uh, closed captions, so, which were initially intended for hard of hearing, but have been used so widely for people who are, say, in a busy airport and or, or teaching a child how to read. That was initially intended for that specific thing, but it's broadened the reach and has and it's become such a, it, it was it created such innovation. And I think this good design has constraints. Um, otherwise, you've got nothing to work around. I, I think it's quite the opposite. I heard a quote a while ago talking about the difference between design and art and basically just said that um, art is for you and design is for others. This thing about design is actually Actually, it's doing it as a way to serve people, which I think is really interesting. So actually that aligns with what you're saying. Yeah. Now I think, but this interesting about, about captions, you it is it is a good point that you you build something for with accessibility in mind, like something like closed captions, it doesn't just benefit that one specific group. And I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to quickly bring in another question that I was actually holding on for later. But um, something that we often use as an artifact in UX research is this thing called personas. For those of you who maybe don't know what personas are, personas are basically you do a bunch of research and then you interpret that research and from that research you're able to draw out archetypes of your users oftentimes these users can be a bit oversimplified and subsequently microsoft wrote an article previously this year about what they call persona spectrums we had a brief conversation about this mandy could you tell us a bit more about um, some of the issues that you see with traditional personas and um, how viewing your users as a spectrum could help a bit more yeah i think personas are a good thing in a way that it kind of does force you to put yourself in someone else's shoes but the problem with them is they're often based on our own biases especially if we haven't done the rigorous and stringent research around them and I think personas uh, going back to that article you mentioned about personas spectrums there's I mean, there are different situations for personas. You could have a permanent a persona with a permanent state, um, say someone with a broken arm, or temporary, um, sorry, say someone with one arm, and then a temporary state, which would be a broken arm, or a situational state, which would be like new parents holding their baby. I think they can be problematic in that they're often drawn on biases and not very diverse. They focus on one particular type of person, whereas people, there are no normal people. Everybody has unique needs and differences. And yeah, we, we very, we all very different. So personas do tend to just group people into this 
oh, this person is not very good with tech and maybe she's older, but then you get a lot of older people who are very good with tech. So it's, it's kind of grouping people into like a very def- small and defined group. Okay. So Mandy, you've won me over. You've, you've told me that creating, designing for inclusivity and accessibility solves for more than just the people than, that, that have the disability. And actually you're talking about these spectrums of your users. And uh, you're also saying that um, by designing for accessibility and inclusivity, it inclu- increases the reach of our product, which affects our business bottom line. Um, and actually constraints are a good thing within design because it results in better design in the end. Okay, so you've won me over. I'm officially an advocate. Okay, so now I'm in a company and I'm 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 fighting the good fight. I'm realizing that we need to become more human-centered in our designs. And the way that we can do that is by being more inclusive. And the way we can do that is by applying accessibility standards. What are some of the ways that we can win over teammates and stakeholders to be more inclusive, especially in a context um, like South Africa, where there's many different groups to consider and we need to try and win over our stakeholders to convince them that actually this is worth the, the good fight. Well, you could also, um, aside from letting them know that it would expand their reach and um, it could also give them good uh, social responsibility. They'll be recognized as being sociable or responsible and people would trust their service more. I, I thought, I read somewhere a good tip would be to reach out to people on your website on your service who have problems who have disabilities and ask them to engage it's I mean it would be it would be a great thing to social responsibility for your company I think that's always a good thing that's sorry what the question well, I was asking if, if there's a way to win over stakeholders on your team and um, basically trying to win them over to be more inclusive. And one of the follow-up questions I was going to ask actually is <clears throat> something that's critical to good design is return on investment. So we're not just saying this is a pretty design and um, like we're saying this works, but how can we actually show with data that this inclusive design and these accessibility standards actually are helping us in our bottom line? Um, I, I, I would imagine you'd see it in your uh, quantitative data and your analytics and and you know looking at things like hotjar maybe some people are struggling to get um, through your checkouts for your um, e-commerce website and if you fix certain things and make remove those barriers um, it's, it's a lot of articles they call them mismatches um, where people struggle with um, certain things based on the environment or where they are or a disability if you remove those and allow more people in, you'll you'll see the numbers rise. So I would imagine that would be a good return on investment. Once we've won over the people around us, once we've won over our design teams, if we really are serious about this, we need to start building systems around it so that we can integrate it into our process and so that we can make sure this is actually repeatable. What are some practical ways that uh, these designers that are listening to guidelines can go about being inclusive in their next project? How can they integrate inclusivity and accessibility standards into their process. The initial design stage where you're doing your research um, is to consider broadening the group of people you speak to, also your social circles, speak to more people and try and remove those biases as a designer and look at a wider wider audience and perspectives and avoid the idea of having a typical customer when you do your personas. Try and see people as more 
more individual and have different abilities at different times based on like environment. So yeah, now I would say speak to customers with disabilities if you can. That's a very good start because it's quite an extreme and it can set those extreme use cases first, which I think I really do believe that help with design. And if you set those constraints early on, then you can focus on the other more, the less extreme use cases and try and get an, uh, speak to people, get an understanding of how they use use the website or product. If you have an existing website, what you can do is also run the um, accessibility audits. So there, I mentioned earlier, there's that Chrome plugin called Lighthouse, which will do an accessibility scan and then it'll come back with a rating and actually give you very helpful points of what you can improve. And be so nice by doing the smallest things can help people so much like labeling a form so that screen readers can can read them like input form, giving it the correct label or putting alt tags on images um, so screen readers can describe it properly. Your buttons, you can be more descriptive. So avoid vague things like click here um, as opposed to download this PDF or download this. Um, well, be descriptive on, of what you're downloading. Once you start doing these things, you'll they become second nature and just part of your design process. And so it, it, I don't think it, it's necessarily such a increased time resources. It's just a better way of, of doing your processes and you'll still do them the same. You'll still be talking to people, but you'll be more cognizant and aware of including a diverse group. Yeah, there's so many things you can do in the design phase. Look at color because color blindness, I, I remember actually learned this in London when I found out because a lot of actually my Male friends are colorblind. I've, I even have um, designer friends who are colorblind. And I think the stat is like one in 12 men are colorblind. So try avoid uh, using color to convey meaning. Underlined links are probably better practice. Using a good contrast ra ratio. There, there's so many nice plugins. I think Sketch has some great plugins. I've been using Figma lately. Um, they've got a, a, an accessibility plugin. If you add these to your design processes, it doesn't really add a lot of time. Um, try and become familiar. We mentioned earlier the W3.org. Try and um, get a good understanding of those guidelines. And then it just becomes second nature. <clears throat> Something that I've been really digging into this past year has been design standards, such as ISO 9241210. At the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned the W3C and their web content accessibility guidelines. Could you tell us a bit about what those are and uh, what value they offer to designers who are trying to be more accessibility centered? They um, are very descriptive in that they give you exactly what to do with the text and the images and the components. And it's, it's very helpful for developers to, um, yeah, very helpful for developers. So it gives you those those standards um, and it, it's very clear so you know how to go about the process. Um, and I think it's important. A lot of times designers and developers work in isolation. I know that's starting to change, but I think it, it's a good... Lately, I've been working with a front-end coder and we've been going through all the different um, labels and labeling the radio buttons and, and using those accessibility guidelines 
guidelines as a base to make things um, accessible for screen readers, for example. So, so guys, actually, just to to share a bit about the the web content accessibility guidelines. These things are super super detailed. I have it actually on my phone, open in front of me now, and there is like anything that you want to know about accessibility, you can find in the standard. It's totally free. You can just Google it. In fact, I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can go and check it out. Um, but it's even talking about like how you can design audio only and video only. Like, so how do you design for that? And like, no, uh, what's the best way you can make non-text content accessible? Um, I'm just scrolling down, like uh, captions, uh, use of color, audio control, um, contrast, uh, visual presentation, images of text. You no, know? like it's just absolutely crazy. Each and every single one of these, there's detailed guidelines on how to build for it. And it's just totally free and online. So I'd really mean, recommend reach, um, like Googling it, giving it a read through. It is absolutely fascinating. And I think something that I've done, which has been really helpful, is I've added it into my note-taking application. I use a note-taking application called Keep It. And I've turned this into, I've downloaded a PDF version of this. So if I search for anything relating to, like say for example, I'm building something and there's going to be audio, I can just type in audio in my note-taking app and I can find anything to do with audio within the W uh, the W3 standard relating to accessibility. So it's right there. So I really recommend digging into this resource and thanks for letting me know about it, Mandy. Oh, great. Yeah, uh, that's Keep Tip. That's, that's useful to know. <laughs> Okay, so so we've spoken about the web content accessibility guidelines. Could you recommend any other useful resources that any listeners of guidelines could dig into to help them with their journey into accessibility? Yeah, well, there's so many good resources. I, I, I guess you could start with the big ones. Uh, Google Material has Design, if you use that design system, they they have a great design system for accessibility. Um, they have guidelines for, you know, touch points or icons. Um, so look at Google Material Design. If you go, if you see on my blog, there's a link to it, um, to the accessibility section. Uh, Microsoft has an inclusive design toolkit, which is very helpful and, and explains the difference between um, inclusive design and accessibility very well. You could go onto the Apple developer website and they have best practices for inclusive design. So those are three good ones to start with. And then lots of different, I actually recently read a book called Mismatch by Kat Holmes, and she worked at Microsoft, but she has, she wrote a really good book. I recommend it um, on design, how it's inclusion shapes design. And she, if you want to learn more about the detail of how it can be innovative and how it's such, and it, it, it's the methodology sparks such elegant design. So I'd recommend that book. The BBC has the great posters. If you just want a quick overview, um, they've got do's, do's and don'ts on designing for accessibility. And it's nice, like images, they're going to help like cognitive things like people with dyslexia going to like work in your UX writing, not using idioms and figures of speech, which also relates to cultural things. So those also nice to show members of the team who are, who don't want to necessarily read long articles. It's like a nice quick overview. What else? There's going back to that copywriting thing I've, on my blog, there's some UX copywriter guides. There's a quite an interesting tool called a readability test tool, which you can test the readability on your site for certain users. And, the, and there's an inclusive components link I put on my site. 
yeah, there's so many resources. I mean, you can just Google it. But yeah, start with Apple and Microsoft and Google. It's been so great to speak to you about this. I think you really unpacked it well. Something I'd like to add in as a bonus is when I was Googling you and I wanted to learn a bit more about you, I saw that you were involved with some radio stations and I noticed something about vinyls. Uh, could you please tell us a bit about uh, how you relate to the world of, of punk rock and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> Yeah, you you don't think of UX and punk rock in the same sentence usually. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess it's just my my hobby. I love music. I collect records, specifically vinyl because well, vinyl's so cool. It's, I sometimes DJ occasionally. Well, I used to before COVID at the occasional party in Cape Town, and then sometimes on radio shows. A friend of mine had a, a The Wrong Rock show on Bush Radio and I did a few shows. You can find them on Mixcloud. My alias is Polly Chalmers. Yeah, I just love punk rock, but like the old stuff, 70s and 80s, going into post-punk. Um, I just love the energy and the speed and the, the whole DIY aspect. And you know, for me, punk is a really accessible thing. It's meant for everybody and it's not exclusive. It like includes everybody. So I guess it does relate to what we've been <laughs> chatting about in a way. And it's, yeah, it's just fun. Could you please give us a, a band recommendation? They, if somebody's never listened to punk rock in their life, what band would you recommend they stop right now and go and listen to? Listen to the Ramones. <laughs> oh, but I can't choose one. I mean, the, the Ramones, The Clash. Yes. Oh, the Damned. There's so many. You, you, yeah, if you like punk rock, then start then. You, there's a whole wormhole. There's so many lesser known ones that you can discover for yourself. But um, yes, the Ramones. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Mandy, thank you so much for being on Guidelines. If people wanted to learn more about you and ask you any questions or read your blog or anything like that, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter. This is Mandy. I'm on LinkedIn and I've got my website, which is extralarge.co.za, um, E-X-T-R-A, large, one word. And I've got a blog. I occasionally write. I try and write more often. but I've literally subscribed to it in my um, RSS feed on NetNewsWire. So yeah, recommend it. Go check it out. Um, and yeah, Mandy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you making the time. And thank you. Uh, this has been great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you learned something from this episode and would like to hear more episodes in the future, please subscribe and consider leaving a comment so that other people can find this content. If you have any questions and would like me to answer them on an upcoming episode, go into the show notes where you can find a link to my Twitter page where you can ask me any questions that you have or even leave a voice note using the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep the user right where they should be first.